This afternoon I'd like to look at uh, the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at the first 14 verses. Join me as I read through them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from the Papyrus, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Give me thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray again as we delve into your word, Lord, that you would feed us this afternoon, Lord. We think of the, the Israelites in the Old Testament. They were fed from that, that manna, that bread from heaven, Lord, and Christ said that he was that bread, Lord. He's what we need this afternoon, Lord, as we open up your word. I pray, Lord, as we go in here, Lord, I know it's been a, a convicting study, Lord. And I pray as we go in and we look it in the right way, Lord, we'll look at things, Lord, like your will, the thing that we look at to be so mysterious at times, Lord, but we know it's revealed plainly in Scripture. Lord, as we look at what the Colossians did, some of their error and some of the things that they did well, that we would imitate them and the things they did well, Lord, that we would learn from this. Lord, that we would grow in the sanctification, Lord, we would grow in our walk, that ultimately, ultimately we'd be pleasing to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, before we get started into this book of Colossians, I'd like to take a minute to explore some background information so we can better understand the letter as a whole. So Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, most likely when he was in prison at Rome, around 60 to 61 A.D., and geographically, going from small to large, Colossae was a city in the region known as Phrygia in the Roman province of Asia. Colossae, which is located in modern-day Turkey at this time, had become fairly insignificant from a secular viewpoint, but it was not always that way. In the 3rd and 4th century before Christ, it was a thriving industrial town, mainly producing wool. It was located on the two well-traveled highways, one going north to south and another going east to west. And due to being at a major crossroad, it resulted in many travelers passing through the city of Colossae. The more people that travel through or reside in a city, the more significant that city becomes. It, people bring business, and bring, business brings money, and money brings more people, and it hasn't changed today. There are a few towns we are familiar with that were in the geographic area of Colossae and which brought people through the city. Ephesus was to the west of Colossae and Sardis was to the east. 
Laodicea was 12 miles to the east, and Hierapolis was uh, 15 miles northwest. So with Colossae being between the city, so to speak, it brought people through Colossae when traveling back and forth through the region. But eventually the route of the north to south road was moved to the east, running through Laodicea instead of Colossae. And this change in travel started the initial decline of the city. And to further the decline in the early 60s A.D., an earthquake devastated this area. The city no longer exists today, and the ruins of it have never been excavated, although we do know exactly where it is located. Colossae consisted mainly of Gentile people, although, like in most areas, there was a small Jewish population. And from verse 2, we can see that this letter is written to the believers in Colossae, and knowing that, we understand that what Paul writes is applicable to us as believers today. So Paul never actually visited Colossae as far as we know. Epaphras, who was from Colossae, was some kind of leader in the church there, possibly founding it. We know from the book of Philemon that Epaphras was in prison with Paul. This is probably the reason why chapter 4 tells us that Tychicus delivered this letter to Colossians since Epaphras was unable to. So like many of Paul's letters, this one was written to fend off false teaching. Although Paul, he never mentions any particular false teacher or teachers, Chapter 2 describes the type of false teaching he's addressing in this letter. The overall idea conveyed to the Colossians is for them to not fall into error, and Paul focuses on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ throughout this letter as he instructs them. So if we consider that idea, we can apply that to our own lives. What better way to keep us from error than to focus ourselves on the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ? When we are satisfied in him, we will not look elsewhere for fulfillment. I think there are two overarching themes in this book that will help us grow in sanctification as we make application of what's contained here. So listen for these two themes. First, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. He clearly emphasizes those two things and goes into great detail explaining how Christ is supreme over everything. We'll get that into in depth in that on the second part of chapter one. And second, Paul focuses on what a Christian should look like, how our walk should look, how we can be identified, what others should see in us, what characteristics we should display if we proclaim to be followers of Christ. Another topic we see Paul mention in Colossians is the will of God. Today I would like to also look at the will of God from a viewpoint we may not always view it from. So let's get started. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is almost an identical introduction to what Paul gives in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians and Philippians, and it's very close to his intro in most all of his other letters. So he first identifies who he is. He says, Paul, an apostle. He explains by whom he gets his authority. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He tells who is with him. He says, Timothy is with him. He tells us who the intended recipients are, the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Then he offers his greetings, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So what is so significant in this greeting? What can we glean from this introduction of his? There are six things we can glean from these two verses. First, this is not from some unknown person. This has the authority of Christ Jesus through Paul. There were those that questioned Paul's authority in that day, and here he gives another reminder of the source of his authority. And second, Paul had never been to Colossae, but he knew of them and he cared for them. 
He may not have been there, but he shared the same concern to correct their error, to help them grow in sanctification with the truth of the word. He knew enough about them to know that they were faithful brothers. And third, it's profitable for us to have brothers and sisters to serve alongside of. Here we see Paul had Timothy with them. We were not meant to be alone as Christians. We are part of a body of believers. The body needs every one of its parts to function well. We are each parts that are dependent on one another with Christ as our head. And fourth, the intended recipients give us some insight into the application. Paul did not intend for this letter to apply to the lost. It's meant for and directed to the saints and the faithful brothers. And real quick, just for clarification, this is referring to all the redeemed, both male and female. It's not exclusionary. Fifth, this should be a constant reminder to the Colossians and to us. As the redeemed, no matter how hard the struggle, no matter how difficult the trial or testing, we receive grace and peace from our Father in heaven. The balance to our suffering is being recipients of his grace and peace through everything we experience in life. He provides for us all that we need. He is the one that will sustain us through trials and difficulties. It is only by his sustaining goodness that we live, because in him we live and move and have our being. Grace and peace to the Colossians and grace and peace to us. At six, we'll see the will of God mentioned here. We'll see it later again in verse nine and again in chapter four. In verse one, we see that the will of God is to use people who were once enemies of God as servants of God. Paul states he was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That statement shows us how God can transform a wretched sinner, one who once was opposed to God, into a mighty servant of God. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let's examine what the will of God was for Paul. Let's consider the implications of his statement, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To do that, let's look into an account that will help us understand the gravity of Paul's claim that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. This may seem like just a general opening statement, but I think we often read over and never truly consider what those words mean. If we look to the book of Acts, chapter 7 specifically, it describes what Stephen told the high priest about the Jews' rejection of the Holy Spirit and ultimately the rejection of the Messiah. Acts states that after he said that the people were enraged at what Stephen had said, they ground their teeth and they stoned him to to death with Saul present there. Acts 8 gives us some insight into Paul, who at this time was referred to as Saul. It starts off describing what Saul thought of Stephen's murder. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 states, And Saul approved of his execution. Most Bible versions translate this as death, but the ESV translates this as an execution. I think that English word of ours fits well with the act that was done. I think execution may give us a more complete picture of what was done to Stephen. Saul approved of his execution. Can you imagine how brutal and bloody that scene was, yet Saul approved of it? He approved of the execution of Stephen. Now let's get back to the will of God. God took a sinful man, one that approved of Stephen's execution of his murder, and he took that man and by his will, he made him an apostle. God took the sinful young man Saul and on that road to Damascus made him a new creature in Christ that we now refer to as Paul. God's will was to transform a man who once approved a murder, one who persecuted the church, into a man who would disseminate the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy, Paul stated he was the chief 
of sinners. I believe that Paul never forgot his sins prior to his conversion. Those things that the old man once did were constant reminders of the grace of God and his great mercy toward us. I believe that Paul knew his old nature, and that is why he considered himself the chief of sinners. And that brings me confidence. I identify with Paul. My old man was just as sinful, and yet God still chose to redeem me through his son, Jesus Christ. And that church is the hope that we have in him. That's the hope that we have for others, that God can transform the most vile men and women, the most opposed to God, the most defiled people among us. Paul is proof, and I am proof, and every believer is proof of that. It was a will of God to transform Paul. It was a will of God to make Paul an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it was not an easy road for Paul. After Paul was transformed into a new creature in Christ, he endured hardships. Remember now, we're still speaking of the will of God. Back to Acts again. Acts 9 describes Paul's future after his redemption. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. It's not bad so far. Paul would be used to proclaim the name of Christ to Gentiles and kings and to Israel. Not a bad gig if that was all there was to it, but it goes on. It says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We're still speaking of the will of God, yet we read how Paul would suffer for the name of Christ. And that's not often the picture we have in our heads when thinking of the will of God. I think when we picture the will of God for us, we often think about those positive things. God, what is your will for me in these two jobs I'm offered? God, what is your will for me in these two choices for a spouse? God, what is your will for me in buying one of these two houses? I'm not saying that's wrong by seeking out God's will and all that we do. What I am saying is that God's will for us has another aspect to it, another side to it that we may not consider from Scripture. Transforming Paul into a vessel that would take the gospel to the world came with suffering. God would show Paul how much he would suffer for him. That was the will of God for Paul. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and along with that came suffering for Christ. So how did Paul suffer for Christ? In 2 Timothy 3, Paul speaks of some of this suffering. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Notice that the suffering Paul went through was not isolated. He mentions multiple places where he suffered for Christ. But although there was suffering, it was not a discouragement to Paul. Remember those last eight words he just stated, Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Yes, we will suffer, but we do not face this alone. This passage goes on to state, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christ Jesus would show Paul the great things he would suffer for him, but Paul did not complain. He happily took those things on. Paul expresses that attitude in Philippians 3. He said, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We can share in his sufferings as we possess the great worth of knowing Christ Jesus. We can see the same idea of suffering as part of God's will in 1 Peter chapter 4. I think we should deeply consider what the will of God is for us. There's no need to seek it outside of Scripture when Scripture plainly reveals it to us. It's described in ways we may not consider, in ways such as rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, our sanctification, suffering, doing good, standing mature. These are some of the ways that God's will for us is described to us in Scripture. I think we should consider that God uses those who were once his enemies as his servants. All the redeemed were once at enmity with God, every single one of us. God does and will transform his people for his use, just like he did to Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Two verses that may seem rather insignificant, a mere common greeting that Paul uses in his letters, but there's so much depth to these two verses. And Paul moves on, he states, we always thank God when we pray for you. Think about that. Is there a group of people, even one single person outside your family, that when you pray for them, you always thank God for them? And there was for Paul. How encouraging that would be to the Colossian church to know that Paul is praying for them. Even considering the error they are falling into, he still thanks God for them. This is a great example for all of us. There's a pattern in, and we see in Paul's writings that we can learn from. We know that later in this letter, Paul will address some error, much like he does in other letters. But before he does that, he encourages them in things that they are doing well. We also see that even when a brother is in error, it does not stop us from praying for them. We should always give thanks for one another, for those who, like us, God has placed within his body of believers. So why does Paul thank God for them? He gives us two reasons. First, because of their faith in Christ Jesus. How did they express their faith? What exactly happened that Paul thanked God for their faith in Christ? We don't have the full picture of what the Colossians were like, but we do know that their faith in Christ was so impressive that it had an impact on Paul as he prayed for them. What impact do we have on others? Are there things in our lives that impact our brothers and sisters in Christ so much that they recall it in their prayers? Second, Paul thanks God for them because of the love they have for all the saints. Those words give us some insight into the Colossians and who they were. The love that they have for all the saints, for all those that are redeemed. I think many times a day we as Christians are known for the very opposite of that, our lack of love for one another, our disregard for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But not to Colossians, their love for the saints was such that it was a catalyst that directed Paul's prayer about them. Their love for the redeemed resulted in Paul thanking God for them when he prayed. How did the Colossians express this love? We really do not know exactly from this letter, but however they did it, it impressed Paul enough that it came to mind every single time he prayed for them. And knowing that raises a question for us, is this something we are known for? Is our love for one another such that it reminds those that are praying for us to thank God for us? Do we have faith and love that conjures up thanks to God and other believers? Think about us. Is the way which we show our love toward one another so impactful that others will think about that attribute when they pray for us? 
If our answer is anything but yes, we have work to do and we should imitate the Colossians in this aspect. The two things Paul mentions are great things for a body of believers to be known by. For faith in Christ Jesus and love for one another, it was a great testimony for that church, even despite the issues Paul would soon address. If we think about those two ideas, faith and love, what was it that provoked that in the Colossians? Because maybe if we get a little bit of insight into what prompted those traits, it would change our faith, it would change our love for one another. And Paul answers that question in the remaining words, this sentence that we're going to read in in verse 5. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We might skip over those words, give them perhaps a cursory thought, and then move on. Paul describes the Colossians as having faith and love stemming from their hope laid up for them in heaven. Paul presents this idea of a future hope in other areas of the New Testament. It's a theme we need to grasp since it affects us every day. Their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for one another was a result of their hope in the heaven to come, what was preached to them when they heard the gospel. Because they did not rest in their current circumstances. They looked forward to the hope laid up for them in heaven. How often do we get caught up in the here and now and forget what lies ahead for us? It's important for us as Christians that we do not get stuck in our current circumstances, no matter what they may be. We must always look forward to the hope laid up for us in heaven. I know that there are times when we face things so difficult, we wonder if we're going to make it through. I know that some of you may be going through that at this very moment. But our comfort is in Christ and what he has done for us. We have hope in him now, but we also have a hope in what is laid up for us in heaven. Because our life here and its subsequent sufferings are ultimately temporal. Our reward is one that is eternal. Do you think we may have forgotten just how glorious that which is laid up for us in heaven will be? Have you considered that if we had a small glimpse of just how good it will be, if we consider just how great it will be to finally be in the presence of our Creator, if we really understood the implications of the hope laid up for us in heaven, our love and faith would be greater than it is. As His redeemed, do we act as if our hope is laid up for us in heaven, or do we cling to this world? I'm not saying that there are not pleasant things for us to see and do in this world, but enjoying what God has given to us is much different than clinging to what is here. Are we eager to leave here and to experience the hope laid up for us in heaven? Let me give you a couple examples of this. David Martin Lloyd-Jones was born in 1899 in Wales and went to see the hope laid up for him in heaven on Sunday, March 1st, 1981. Before being called to the ministry, he was an up-and-coming doctor with a prestigious medical future ahead of him. He walked away from that completely when he was called to preach and he served faithfully for almost 30 years. Eventually, in his last days on earth, his health started to fail, and he lost his ability to speak. He would communicate by nodding his head, yes and no. The Thursday prior to his death, he wrote a note for his wife and daughter, and that note read, don't pray for healing, don't hold me back from the glory. Three days after writing that, he fell asleep and realized the hope laid up for him in heaven. Another example, Francis Ridley Havergal. She was a poet and hymn writer who was born in 1836 and passed in 1879. Take My Life and Let It Be was one of her more familiar hymns you may know. At the end of her life, her doctor told her one day, he said, Goodbye, I shall not see you again. She asked, Do you really think I'm going? He replied, Yes. Today, she asked, he stated, Probably. Her response was beautiful, too good to be true. 
When our hope is truly laid up for us in heaven, we will react like them. Our hope is our encouragement. When you need encouragement, think about what Paul stated in the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians. Think about these contrasting ideas as we face life's difficulties. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul goes on to say, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So do not lose heart, redeem. The things in this life are transient. They will pass away. Our hope is laid up for us in heaven. The unseen is eternal. We are afflicted so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. We share in his sufferings. We are given over to death for Jesus' sake, but we do not lose heart. These are light, momentary afflictions that are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that we cannot now comprehend. It is beyond comparison. It is unimaginable to us. And that is a hope laid up for the redeemed. That is what lies ahead of us. Keep that in your, in your head, that idea in your head. Meditate on the thought that there is something in our future so glorious that we cannot even begin to understand it. Remember that this world... As difficult as it can be, at its very worst, can only offer us light, momentary afflictions in comparison with what God has in store for us for all of eternity. We have a hope laid up for us in heaven, and we should never forget that fact. The Colossians knew this from the gospel that was preached. We must lay our trust in this truth from Scripture, knowing much greater things await us in glory. And that truth was bearing fruit among the Colossians. Paul goes on to say that the gospel which has come to you is bearing fruit. The gospel is not only bearing fruit, but it is increasing the number of believers in the world. That same gospel is doing that same thing today in the same way it did to the Colossians when they first heard the gospel. But not only did the Colossians hear it, it says they fully understood it. They now knew what the grace of God was in truth. The gospel in Paul's day was was bearing fruit by making believers, by adding to the redeemed. The gospel is still doing that today. It's still bearing fruit, and it is still increasing. And Paul goes on and tells us who it was that brought that gospel to the Colossians. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras was the one that brought the gospel to Colossae. He taught them what he was taught. It says, Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, and more descriptive, Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, Epaphras, a faithful trustworthy deacon of Christ. It was Epaphras that had told Paul about the love the Colossians had for one another. Let's consider that for a moment. Of all that Epaphras told Paul about the Colossians, one thing that stood out was their love. So what if we were a church that existed in Paul's day? What if one of us was going to Paul and giving a report on his church? What would stand out as a trait that we have? What would be relayed to him about us? Would the overall thing that stood out be our common love in the Spirit. 
And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The report from Epaphras, the report of their love in the Spirit, that report which told Paul that the gospel was going out and bearing fruit, that gospel which was increasing numbers of the redeemed, must have been a great encouragement to Paul. We know Paul faced great difficulties. We already covered that. But it was what the Spirit of God was doing after transforming men and women that drove Paul to pray for them. Paul knew the beginnings of transformation, but he also knew that they needed to continue to grow in sanctification. And this prompted him to pray that they would grow. So he prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, of the will of God, and spiritual wisdom and understanding. And I'm certain that when the Colossians read these words, they were greatly encouraged that Paul and others were praying for them. I hope that we have that same effect. When our brothers and sisters in Christ hear that we pray for them, I hope that they are encouraged in that. Paul says from the day that they heard that they have not stopped praying for the Colossians. You know, sometimes we tell one another, I'm praying for you. And then if we do end up fulfilling that commitment, and it is a commitment Then we quickly make the promised prayer request and we move on. But not Paul and Timothy. They pray for the good of the Colossians. They prayed that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will, that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. We see another aspect of God's will mentioned by Paul. Paul wants the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, and he explains why in verse 10. He says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So why did Paul want them to know the will of God? What were the results of the will of God being revealed to them? Was the will of God for them to buy a nicer horse? Was it to find a better house to live in? Was it to move to a more prosperous city with better location? No, Paul wants the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so it would affect how they live, so it would affect their walk so that they would be fully pleasing to him, so that they would bear fruit. Paul and Timothy did not cease praying for the Colossians. They prayed, asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what does walking worthy of Christ look like? What does being fully pleasing to him look like? Here Paul describes it as bearing fruit in every good work, as increasing in the knowledge of God, as being strengthened with all power while having an endurance with joy. Paul tells the Ephesians the same thing, that they need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. In Ephesians 4, he tells them the traits of that walk. He describes what their walk should look like. He states that they should have humility and gentleness and patience and love, that they should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And not surprisingly, Paul tells similar to the Philippians at the end of the first chapter. He says to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ and describes that as a following. He says, standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened by their opponents, and to suffer for the sake of Christ. What a prayer they prayed for the Colossians. What a blessing it would be if we prayed the same for others, that we would all grow in our spiritual wisdom and understanding, knowing his will in that so that we can better serve him. When we increase in the knowledge of God, the result is bearing fruit in every good work. When we increase in the knowledge of God, we should have humility and gentleness and patience and love and unity and peace. When we increase in the knowledge of God, we should stand firm in one spirit with one mind. We should strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. When we increase in the knowledge of God, we should not be frightened by our opponents. These are also the will of God for us.
This, Paul, this walk that Paul describes is how we should be identified. This walk should be a trademark of every believer. This walk should set us apart from the lost. We should be able to identify every believer by our walk that aligns with what Paul has stated. Forget about the Colossians for a moment. Do we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? If we consider what our walk should look like, if we consider what traits that we should be bearing as Christians, we should see the effects of the Spirit in everything we do. It affects every aspect of our lives. We exude these traits everywhere we go. We cannot help but to display them. And 2 Corinthians chapter 2 comes to mind when I think of our walk, how we should be, how we should look to others. It says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Are we the aroma of Christ? Do we represent the fragrance of the knowledge of Him? Do we spread that everywhere we go? And if not, then why? Why do we not have the aroma of Christ that affects the world? Are we just imitators? Paul finishes that chapter with this. He says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So are we just peddlers of God's word? Are we here only for personal gain, or are we men and women of sincerity who have been commissioned by God? Do we speak in Christ? Are we the aroma of Christ? Where do we stand, church? That is a question each of us needs to ask of ourselves right now. We are either the aroma of Christ or just peddlers of the gospel. So which one are we? If we profess Christ or not the aroma of him, we must repent. Our walk, our lives reflect who we are, and that cannot be hidden no matter how hard we try. Paul is stating that if we want to live our lives in a way that lines up with Scripture, in a way that is pleasing to God, we need to know God's will, and we get that by gaining spiritual wisdom and understanding. We get that by always increasing our knowledge of Him. We get that by living in His Word. Our walk as Christians depends on our knowledge of God. That knowledge of God is gained through Scripture. We have to be in the Word studying it and searching it so we can know God. When we discipline ourselves and do that, then we can walk in a way that's pleasing to Him. Then we will bear fruit in every good work as our knowledge of God increases and we live by applying that to our lives. Think about Paul's prayer for them. Do you see Paul praying for physical things for the Colossians? Don't you think the Colossians had physical needs? That's common today. We think about physical things when we pray. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that's wrong. We're not promoting asceticism. I'm saying that our example for prayer is what Paul has demonstrated here to us. He is praying that they will have a knowledge of God. He knows that a knowledge of God is what leads to obedience to God. Obedience to God comes from the ongoing process of sanctification. When we grow in the knowledge and wisdom of Him, the goal is to use that to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord. Once again, we see here Paul referring to the way we should live as Christians. He refers to our walk. This Greek word used to describe how we should live. Our walk should be worthy of the Lord, resulting in being pleasing to Him. So what does pleasing to Him mean? It means that the way we live, the way we walk, should result in bearing fruit in everything we do while we increase in the knowledge of Him. 
You can notice a connection here. We do not gain in knowledge simply to be better at debating one another on social media. We don't grow in knowledge so we can write another book. We don't grow in knowledge so we can impress others with our vast knowledge of theology. Our goal in gaining knowledge needs to be so we are fully pleasing to him. Our goal in gaining knowledge is to grow in sanctification and to grow in joyful obedience. How are we to please one that we know nothing of? We need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But Paul's prayer for them does not stop there. He also knows how sinful we are. He knows our shortcomings, the battle that we face every day when we serve him. So he prays for more traits that we all need. In order to serve him, we need to be strengthened, not in our own selves, but in his glorious might. We will need ongoing endurance to handle this daily battle, which comes with new challenges every day. We will need patience to trust and the promises of God, even when they do not seem to fit our time frames. In those times when we plead with God in prayer, if the answer seems to be delayed, we need that patience. Patience is one of those traits that is not common, especially in our day. We are almost programmed to have things quickly, yet Paul prays for their patience. How many of us need a greater patience? I know I do. But Paul prays for strength, endurance, and patience with joy. Don't overlook those two words, with joy. Can I be obedient without joy? Somewhat. I can be upholding what I'm commanded and be complaining the entire time, like Israel in the Old Testament, grumbling and murmuring. But we are called to have joy. It goes hand in hand with the character we should portray. Maybe I feel strengthened and I feel like I can patiently endure sufferings, but I'm ungrateful and angry, dissatisfied with delayed answers to prayer, dissatisfied with my situation. I can have three of those, strength, patience, and endurance, yet without joy, it is incomplete. And in order for us to have joy with patience and endurance, we need to get our strength not from ourselves, but from him, from his glorious might. And Paul says, giving thanks to the Father. When we have joy, it naturally leads us to giving thanks to the Father, who Paul states does three things for us, three things that conjure up these things. He says, first, he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has qualified us, or he has made us worthy. Because of what Christ has done for us, we must thank our Father in heaven for rendering us worthy to share the inheritance of the saints. When we gain more knowledge of him, that should naturally direct us to be thankful to him. When we see ourselves as we are, and we see him as he is, we can do nothing but give thanks for what we cannot do. Why do we give thanks? He says, because he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Think about that idea that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We were headed to an eternal domain of darkness that starts in this world. Because he has delivered us, he has snatched us from danger, from the domain of darkness. He delivered us from this dark domain. He transferred us. He transplanted us into a place that was not rightfully ours, the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that thought alone is a comfort to us that negates any suffering we may face. It's a common practice of Paul. He reminds us of who we once were and who we now are or who we should be. This should take us back to the old man. It should remind us of the glorious transformation. It should conjure up the miraculous change into a new creature in Christ. We are transferred from death into life, eternal life, and we should ever be grateful for that. And Paul ends this section of his letter with this. He said, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ is a means of our redemption. 
Redemption gives the idea of a release from a captive condition. We are born dead in our sins, unable to free ourselves from that sin. We are captive in them. The payment for that sin is death and eternal separation from God and eternal torment. Jesus is a who and what that releases us from that condition through a substitutionary death. We were bought with a price. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The redeemed have redemption through Christ and the forgiveness of sins. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We need to be careful how we respond. We cannot let our sin overwhelm us to the point where we do not serve. We can be so down on ourselves thinking about our failures that it keeps us from moving forward. Or we can be on the other end and be presumptive on God's forgiveness and disregard our sin. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? So we need to be somewhere in between. Our sin should still trouble us. But it should be a reminder of the goodness of God and what he has done through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we fail, we repent and we move forward. There is work to be done. We must work the works of Christ while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. So remember the two themes that we spoke of in the beginning, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in our Christian walk. How we view Christ will shape how we walk. If we walk worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ, our walk will affect everyone around us. Later in chapter 1, Paul states that he rejoices in his sufferings for the sake of the Colossians. We are strengthened, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. We must have endurance and patience with joy. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us and the redeemed will stand before him holy and blameless and above reproach. As we share in the inheritance paid for us by Christ, as we grow in our prayer and love for one another, as we learn to depend on him for our strength and power, as we endure with patience and joy, we can rest in our redemption and look forward to the day when we finally reach that hope laid out for us in heaven. As we grow in sanctification, our faith in Christ Jesus should grow. Our love for one another should grow, and our hope laid up for us in heaven should grow. Grace to us and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, how could we ever be grateful enough, Lord, for the price that was paid for us? I pray, Lord, that we would look to that old man, that we would understand, that we would see that every day, Lord. We'd be grateful for what's been done for us. I pray, Lord, as, as we face these difficulties, as we face the sufferings, we would do it with joy. We would heed the examples of those that have gone before us in Scripture. Lord, in the great difficulties that, that do seem overwhelming, Lord, that we would look to your word, Lord. We would look to you for the strength we need. And Lord, we will look forward to that day when we'll be away from this body of flesh. We'll look forward to that day to finally see our Savior. We'll look forward to that day when we no longer have to battle this flesh. Look forward to the day when you come for your bride. I pray, Lord, that we be busy about the Father's business, Lord. We long for the time to be with you, to be away from here, Lord, but I pray that we be busy here and serving you here. I pray, Lord, as we're reminded every day of our sinful natures, Lord, that it wouldn't hinder us. It wouldn't keep us from serving, Lord. You know and you understand our, our sin was paid for. It was nailed to the cross for us. Pray when we face those times, when we repent of those things, that we would move forward and serve you. 
I pray, Lord, you'd be with this church, Lord. You would build us up to a place that is pleasing to you. We pray for your continued guidance, Lord, your direction. We pray, Lord, that we'd be lightened to this community. I pray, Lord, that we'd have that desire to grow in sanctification, to get into your word. Help us, Lord, as we're distracted by the things of the world. So things pull us away and draw us away from the one that we love. Pray that you would help us to grow, Lord, to focus our attention where it needs to be. We were created to be servants for you. I pray, Lord, as we open up your word, we would desire it more and more. It's a deer pants for the water. So we feed ourselves with that food, with that spiritual food. We would desire it even more. I pray, Lord, as fathers and mothers, would help us, Lord, to train our children. They'd be raised up with the knowledge of Scripture, Lord. They'd have an advantage that some of us didn't have. You'd be with them as they're homeschooled, Lord, as they go off into college. Pray that that foundation will be built, Lord. Pray you'd help us in the workplaces, Lord, to be able to spread the gospel, to be able to live that life that people would see something in us. I pray, Lord, that every time we open your word, we would grow. As if we're challenged, Lord, we would be crippled by it, Lord. We would understand your goodness toward us. So we look forward to the time where we'll stand before you holy and blameless because of what Christ has done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.